So take, a, take us back then to uh, young Keith growing up. It's, what, it's this on? That's yeah. you on, yeah. What's life like growing up for you? Uh, before I start, yeah. I, just, well, I prayed before uh, I came up here. And um, God gave me a message for Lindsay. I thought, this isn't going to go well, because as a lawyer, I, I charge by the hour, so I tend to take my time uh, speaking. <laughs> God wants you to be obedient. <laughs> you need to work on your obedience. He does not want you to use that fire extinguisher again. <laughs> Okay, um, I grew up uh, in northwest London. Uh, my family were Catholic, so I went to church uh, from a very early age, and I suppose my upbringing was quite religious. Um, came from a good, good home. Uh, I suppose some people would say I came from quite a, a privileged background, uh, quite well educated, and um, I was lucky enough to be quite academic, so um, it embarrasses me to say that I was generally an A-grade student. Um, I used to excel at most things I turned my hands to. Uh, my parents paid for coaching um, in tennis. I was club champion at tennis, captain of the school football team, cricket team. Football was my first love, uh, and that featured uh, throughout my life. And I think up until about the age of 11, uh, things went really well for me. So I sailed through school, did pretty well at everything uh, I turned my hand to. And then I guess at that stage it probably took a bit of a turn for the worst. Yeah, just to set the scene, um, London was a very different place in the late 1970s. So um, I'd just gone to secondary school. There was a school of about a thousand people in northwest London and uh, that I was one of only five ethnic minority students at the school. So the, the National Front were at the forefront of, uh, I suppose, the street politics in Britain generally, but particularly in London. And the school I went to was quite a... It was a tough place to go, and it was the first time in my life that the colour of my skin really came to the forefront of my own mind, let alone anyone else's. And... Uh, from the age of about 11 or 12, I, I got bullied, and I got bullied quite severely. So every day I used to go into school, there was an older group of lads who used to line up either side of a corridor, and they used to wait for me to come in, and they used to set upon me. And apart from calling me names, spitting at me, they used to physically assault me. They used to rob my books, throw them into puddles, take my bag, my belongings, whatever. And I went from being an A-grade student to an E-grade student very quickly. And I was in a place of pain, uh, didn't know where to turn, couldn't really even speak to my family about it. And I became quite a, an unhappy, dysfunctional child. So the A-grades disappeared. I gave up most sport literally overnight and started playing truant. And this bullying went on for a prolonged period of time. And I was in such a place of pain, all I really wanted was love and acceptance. Uh, one day, I don't really know to this day why I did it, uh, but I went into school with what we'd call, I, I went equipped. So I took a weapon and I went into the classroom, the bullying had spilled into the classroom, and of course the abuse started 
and um, I threatened one of the perpetrators and I said, look, if you call me names again, I'm going to stab you. And they thought I was joking. They didn't think I'd carry it through, but the inevitable happened. He called me names that were quite painful for me. I got up out of my seat while the teacher was out of the room and I stabbed him. I stabbed him quite severely. He went off to hospital and by rights I should have gone to Borstal, but he was so scared of me that he wouldn't grasp. And in that moment, the mask went up in my life. And what I found was that that mask gave me a level of protection. Uh, I equated it with love and affection, but really what I traded on was fear. And before I knew it, I was running around with the people that bullied me. And I got into local gang fighting, fell into a life of local crime. The academics went out the window and my family were looking at me, my parents were looking at me thinking, what happened to our angelic boy? Well, he had long since left the building and um, my life spiralled, really. Uh, the first time I was arrested was at the family home in front of my parents on a, a Wednesday night, uh, about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, the police came to the home. I'd been involved in something. They came to, to arrest me. And you can imagine the, the upset at home. My, my dear mother, who unbeknown to me, um, by that time had been evangelised. She'd become a Christian and she'd begun praying for me. I, I didn't know that. Uh, but I went off to the police station, got released in the early hours of the morning, having been charged. When I came back through the front door, she was standing there. She's about that high. She looked me in the eye and she said, you're not leading your life right. When you hear God's call, you will not mistake it. Oh, that's a bit strange. But my arrogance, my pride and my pain, I just said to her, get out of my face. I don't want to know about your God, your church, your life. I don't want to know. I've got school in the morning. I'm going to bed. And that situation sort of, it carried on throughout my years growing up as my life of crime escalated. My first love was football. I'm a Chelsea supporter of old. <laughs> and, um, 2003 is a long time. Just <laughs> yeah, it was uh, from sort of the early 80s, I was sort of robbing from my parents actually to go to games up and down the country um, when they were in the old second division, they, they weren't very good. So the, the club I see now is, is a very different one to the one that I, I supported back in those days. But my first love was football, and it wasn't long before I graduated from local gang fighting to football violence. And, I mean, football was a really racist place to be at that time. I, I was the only Asian man that went to football, particularly at Chelsea in the 1980s. I started running around with a group called the Chelsea Headhunters. They took me under their wing and um, I, I grew through the ranks. And if you sort of fast forward to age 21, so it was sort of 1987, I, I'd become pretty well known. Uh, and my life at that time was, uh, you know, I would go out literally four or five nights a week. I, I was drug dealing. I, I had a beautiful looking woman on my arm. I would uh, buy the best designer clothes with the proceeds of crime. It was really 
a life and my coping mechanisms were drink, drugs, sex and violence. And I, I was so broken. I, I was so lost. If I wasn't running around the streets leading mobs of four or five hundred uh, hooligans, I was in a nightclub uh, somewhere getting off my head on cocaine and looking for the next hit, the next bit of excitement and the next bit of adrenaline. Uh, and I led that life uh, for a very long time and I got out of my depth. Every time something went wrong, either I was arrested or I get, got injured or a relationship broke down, my mum would always say to me, when you hear God's call, you will not mistake it. I had no comprehension of what she meant, no comprehension whatsoever. So I really, around that time, the life I was leading, I was in such a place of pain. A lot of people, I suppose they must have looked at me and they glamorised it. it. From the outside, it looked quite exciting. But the reality was that when my head hit the pillow at night, I was isolated, broken, lonely and actually quite desperate. I really wanted to take the mask down, but I didn't know how. Once you get involved in a lifestyle like that, I suppose in a way it takes a real man to take the mask down and reveal the image of God that's in all of us. And I, I was incapable of doing that without God's help. So I knew change needed to come. I'd got out of my depth. I was involved in the second trial of the Chelsea Headhunters. I was a main witness for the defence. There were various mobs in London that were after me. And I felt I couldn't move. I was like a rabbit in headlights. Everywhere I went in London, people were on me. I didn't have peace. So I ran off uh, to Cyprus one summer. It got, we got to the summer of 1994. And I was keeping out of London, out of sight, out of mind. I ran off to Cyprus. I got arrested out there for drug dealing. I was thrown in prison uh, for a week. And um, I found out I wasn't too much of a tough guy, actually. I mean, people thought I was, and a lot of people feared me, believe it or not, mainly because of who I knew and the calls that I could make. But, I mean, I've met some villains in my time, but at least they looked the part. I didn't look the part, and I didn't feel it. Change needed to come. When I came home from Cyprus, I spent a week with my family, and I just left these shores again, in desperation, really. I went to, I went to Crete, to work for a summer and I went there with my best friend uh, Nick he was from Sussex he wasn't involved in football he, he took drugs and he liked the life that I led I suppose he found it quite exciting to be alongside me but he was essentially he was a good man and we spent the summer in Crete together had a great time when, when we came home I, I started spending a lot of time with him in Sussex outside of London just to keep my head down keep out of the way really and um on the 5th of February 1995, uh, change came, but it didn't come in the way um, that I thought it would. Uh, we'd been out for a night, uh, we'd taken a lot of cocaine, drunk copious amounts of alcohol, we picked up a couple of girls in a nightclub, and we were on our way home, uh, driving down a country lane. Our friend Johnny was driving, and we overtook a taxi on a bend at about 80 miles an hour and we hit a school crossing sign, and it acted like a launch pad. And the car went about 15 feet up in the air, it turned 180 degrees, and we hit a tree full on. And uh, the roof of the car caved in, 
and it took the top of my friend Nick's head off. Uh, God rest his soul, he, he died on top of me with uh, chronic brain damage. And it was in the carnage uh, of that car crash, the driver died as well, that I met with God for the first time. And I sensed the overwhelming presence of God. I suppose the peace of God came upon me and I experienced it for the first time. I didn't understand it, but I came out of that car crash. I went into, I went into a coma for a while and I had an out-of-body experience. I couldn't make sense of the peace that I felt and God's presence. And the shutter came down on my former life, but I couldn't take the mask down. What happened was I began to lead my life like a recluse. So I stopped going out, wouldn't see anyone from my former life. I just wanted peace, just wanted to be a good person. I wanted to put things right. My friend's family, Nick's mum, mum and dad came alongside me and said, look, we know who you are. We know the life you lead, the type of person you are. Our son loved you. You've been given a second chance. All we ask, whatever you do with your life, do your best. Just give your best. We understand you've got a brain on you. Use it. Just do something. I took that on board, moved back home with my parents, said, look, I want to put things right. Can I go to university? I want to study. I began a journey, did a law degree, just started trying to be a better person, trying to do it on my own strength. I even started going to church again, but had no idea of how to access God and how to have a real relationship with him. Mm -hmm. That journey lasted about eight years, during which time qualified as a lawyer, miracle of miracles, it can only have happened through God. I think I've got six convictions for violent offences. I had clearance from the Law Society. They allowed me to practice uh, as a lawyer. And now, I mean, it seems a bit bizarre even now for me that I, I run my own law practice in, in central London. But really, what does that count for? Okay, I mean, it actually counts for nothing. And it really is just a different mask. And it's... I mean, I've got to be careful in my working life that I don't just simply put up another mask, a different one, and use that as a way of protection. What's most important in my life is that I take that mask down and I preach the gospel and allow people to see the God in me and what he's done in my life. Otherwise, mm -hmm. the danger is that it's all been yeah. a waste of time. And really the only meaning in my life at the moment and the only meaning there'll ever be is my faith in Jesus Christ. And what, what happened was that for eight years I struggled with the knowledge that God was real but without accessing him and having a proper relationship with him. And eventually God started to strip away everything from me. So I had a new relationship uh, with a young lady We'd been together for five years. He took that away from me. I had a fallout with my father. The relationship was, it had been rocky throughout the years because of the life that I'd led. I mean, we heard Jasper talk about the importance of a fatherly figure in your life. And it was something that was lacking because of the life that I'd led. We clashed yeah. really 
at each and every corner I turned because of the life I was leading, we clashed. Understandably, he was disappointed in me. He didn't know how to deal with it, what had happened to his son. And I think everything in my life was sort of stripped away from me and God stood very gently at the side of me. Look at me. Don't look to other things for affirmation, for love, affection. There's only one answer. There's only one way out. He didn't force his way in. Around that time, it was completely different from the life that I'd led, where there were hundreds of people around me for all the wrong reasons. I had only a handful of friends, people that I let near me. And one of those was a guy called Clinton. He married a friend of mine. He had been abused as a child when he was three years old by one of his relatives. He'd become a heroin addict and an alcoholic. And I, I saw a level of peace in him that I could not understand. And he came alongside me in a very gentle, loving way over a period of two to three months. He didn't preach the gospel at me. He just loved me. He was a father figure, if you like. He was very gentle in how he evangelized to me. And eventually, we came to a point where I had a conversation. I said, look, I've turned my life around. I'm a good person. I try and do good all the time. I'm kind to everyone. But it still all goes wrong for me. I don't understand life. Look at all this, the stuff that's gone on in your life. You're a heroin addict. You're an alcoholic. But you're so happy. And he just said this to me. I'm going to tell you the meaning of life because I think your, your eyes are open, your ears are open, and your heart's open. And I think for the first time, you're willing to listen. And I think it was God's perfect timing. I was desperate to hear what he had to say, and he just said, the whole meaning of life, the only reason we're on this planet is to come into a relationship with your maker, Jesus Christ. It's the only reason we're here. And in that moment, I mean, if I could put this in a bottle and sell it, I would. But there's no way of describing it, as many of us know. In that moment, the Holy Spirit came upon me in the most powerful way. And I dropped to my knees and gave my life to God wow. in a heartbeat. Yeah. When I got up off the floor, crying my eyes out like a baby, I couldn't understand what was happening to me. I couldn't understand what I felt. I looked him in the eye and literally asked him, what's happening to me? And he just said to me, you need to do an alpha course. I was like, what's that? <laughs> I was like, what's alpha? What are you talking about? He said, you should go to my church, HTB. I said, what's HTB? He said, it's Holy Trinity Brompton, the home of the alpha, the alpha course. So I walked in that church. It was about 13 years ago. I walked in that church the following day for the first time. And as I walked in... They were singing the hymn Amazing Grace and I listened to the words for the first time and I saw things through a different lens. And for the first time, through the power of God, through his Holy Spirit, I was able to take my mask down and reveal the real man made in the image of God. As each and every one of us are here today, we're made in the image of God. And it's only when I align myself with Jesus that I'm able to reveal that. 
my tendency, even now, the madness that goes on in my head, that's the truth, is to try and put the mask back on. But every day, every hour, actually, every minute, if I look to Jesus, he keeps the mask off. He keeps me at peace. And just occasionally, I can serve him as I'm called to. Yeah, that's, that's not incredible, isn't it? Like... We've, uh, we've got five minutes left. Um, <clears throat> um, tell us what difference then God's made in your life, if you can. First and foremost, all the glory goes to Jesus. Yeah. I, look, I'm just a normal lad, and sometimes the weight of God's presence in my life if that makes sense, I almost cower under the weight and think, wow, why me? How is it you've taken me from the depths, really dark places, and you've taken me so far? I mean, he has transformed me in a way. If you had said to me, 20 years ago, when I was running around the streets of London, leading mobs of four, five hundred people into battle, for what? What a joke. What a waste of time. Lost, completely lost and broken. If you'd have said to me, 2015, you'll be standing on stage, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd have just thought, that's a joke. Yeah. It's never going to happen. <clears throat> So, I mean, what he's done in my life, I, I can't really, I couldn't put it into words. But in terms of what I do with my time mm-hmm. and service, I mean, I, I lead on the Alpha course. I've got a real heart for Alpha and bringing other people to Jesus. And I think the greatest privilege I've got in my life is I, I do a lot of prison ministry. And I try and reach people that I can relate to who are really poor, broken, needy, low self-esteem. Whatever's happened in their lives, I can't say. But what I can tell them is there's only one way out. Yeah. And that's through the love and presence of Jesus Christ in your life. Um, but I'll tell you this, a slight change, Spud. I, I don't even do 1% of what I should do. And listening to Roy, Roy and Jasper before me, I mean, how do you follow that? But I felt really convicted while I was listening to each of them. I thought, Keith, you should be doing so much more. Because, I mean, I just, I jotted down a few of the things that they'd said. And, you know, apart from Jasper, we can all be father figures to everyone in our lives. We can come alongside our friends, our family. I, I mean, Roy's right, we, we can change. We can change not only things for the next five years, we should be able to change things today yeah. and long after five years. And actually, we are the church and we're called to serve each and every one of us. You know. I, 
I think in the Gospel of Luke, you know, I was saying to you earlier today, we know the story of Jesus when he, he comes into the city and the crowds are all there. They're waiting for him and Zacchaeus, the tax, the tax collector, an outcast in that society, someone that everyone else shunned. They didn't want to talk to him or be near him or around him. He was an outcast. He scales the sycamore tree. And as Jesus comes in, he obviously knows. He calls him by his name. He doesn't say, you there in the tree, come down. He calls him by his name, Zacchaeus, come down. I need to come to your house and eat with you. And each and every one of us here today, somehow we're here for a reason. We're called by name. It's not by chance that I'm here. And, you know, I've had the great privilege of seeing, what, 10 guys come to the front um, earlier today and give their lives to, to Jesus. I mean, what a privilege just to be here. But the same that's true for me and Spud and Roy, Roy, Jasper, it's true for them as well. None of us are here by chance. Psalm 139, we're told that he knows every hair on a head and he knew us in our mother's womb. He knows each and every one of us per personally. And it, I mean, that for me, it's just so powerful, but we're all called wherever we are in our walk, whatever stage we're at, yeah. we're called to serve. And one thing on the Alpha course we talk about is a guy called Albert McMakin, who arranged a group of people to go to a conference, a Christian conference, and um, that group were going, and there was one guy, a farmer's boy, I don't know whether you all know the story, but that farmer's boy was, he was reluctant to go to the conference, but Albert McMakin, God bless him, somehow he found the tools and was equipped to ask that boy, that farmer's boy, look, can you just drive the van, come along? And that, that guy ended up not only driving the, the, the bus, taking the group to the conference, but he ended up going into the back of the conference. And, you know, if you fast forward 30 years, he's preached to about 2 billion people, either personally or through, through the power of media and television. That's Billy Graham. And, of course, as we tell everyone on the Alpha course, we can't all be a Billy Graham or a Spud or a Roy, a Roy or a Jasper, but we can all be an Albert McMakin. And you know, it's not about me, but my prayer for each and every one of us in here today is that, including myself, is that we're transformed yeah. by the power of the Holy Spirit and that each and every one of us take a step forward today yeah. in faith and in service. Amen, mate. That's fantastic. Let's show our appreciation.